<gülüyor> i̇şte mucize, mucize. Evet mucizenin adı Hatice. Hatice. That was a woman waving to the crowd rescued after 92 hours in the rubble. Her mother pulled out just a short time later. Good morning, everyone. These are just a few miraculous earthquake stories coming out. But the truth is that hope for survivors is really fading fast. Families in Syria and Turkey now bracing for the inevitable. They may never be reunited with their loved ones as the death toll nears 22,000. Also, former uh, Vice President Mike Pence subpoenaed in the special counsel's overseeing Trump's role in January 6th insurrection. Will he invoke in executive privilege? Also, President Biden has sat down for an interview with Telemundo. What he said about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former President Trump, and 2024. We're going to begin in Turkey and Syria, where hope is turning into despair. The staggering death toll has now topped 21,000, and thousands more are still missing, possibly dead and dying under piles of rubble. Rescues shifting to recovery four days after the catastrophic earthquake. Families are facing the grim reality that they will likely never see their loved ones alive again. We've seen desperate, heartbroken family members join the search and dig through the wreckage with their own bare hands, including this man who says he lost 30 relatives in the quake. We're talking about 30 people, not one or two. We're still digging to retrieve them. We only retrieved 10 bodies and the other 20 remain under the rubble. We have been digging for the past two days without sleep. It's heartbreaking. It's too sad. Children, babies and women. All gone. On top of all the death and destruction is the growing humanitarian crisis. Hundreds of thousands of people are now homeless in the freezing cold with the food and water, little food, water and medicine. And to show you the scope, right, what this destruction looks like, what took 20,000 plus lives, you need the context, what things looked like before and what normal used to be. So let's start here. This is a mosque before the earthquake in Malatya, Turkey. It used to look like this, and this is what it looks like now, completely decimated. And look at these side-by-side images. Now I want to show you a street in Gaziantep from before. Here it is on a normal day. Here it is after the earthquake. And here it is side by side, right? Barely recognizable when you put these images side by side. The last one I want to show you, these are satellite images of Karan Manmaras, right? You've seen Nick Payton Walsh and our reporters there in Turkey. This is a stadium before the earthquake. This is after. That stadium is full of white aid tents. So many buildings around it completely flattened. And here it is side by side. The magnitude of this tragedy, both from the air and on the ground. We have correspondents on the ground across this disaster zone. Let's begin with our Nick Payton Walsh, live from a field hospital where helicopters are flying in patients. Nick, what are you seeing? Yeah, extraordinary sense of urgency here as the government machine wheels into action. Endless Turkish Navy helicopters picking up here. Urgently injured individuals, one, a girl as young as three and a two-year-old sister, two-month-old sister, we believe. The whereabouts of their mother unknown. Time increasingly running out. And here's what we saw across the vast but devastated city of Antakya yesterday and last night. 80 hours in and in Antakya, any sign of hope will do. Rescuers rush in. These buildings' first three floors have collapsed down, but left their upper floors upright. 
and little Yamour, aged eight, is inside, possibly alive. By the time they get her to the ambulance, though, it's clear they were too late. Her mother outside, only able to watch her everything vanish. My little one, she says, don't take her, don't let her get lost. Antakya's streets, a chilling patchwork of what's left standing and what's not left. In its ruins, anxious crowds of rescuers and locals thinking they heard someone alive, demanding silence so they can listen again. Down here is Ahmed, the rescuers say, alert, responsive, a Syrian refugee. The building next to him barely hanging on at an angle. Their work desperately wishing it were quicker. Across the city, hell has landed. This man guarding his neighbor's books with his father-in-law next to the body of his mother-in-law. He gestures behind him to where he once lived. It's kind of hard to get your head around just how inhabitable a city of this size has become so fast. Literally every street you walk down has a scene like this. And the roads out, well, they're jammed full of people trying to get away to safety because the building still could collapse. And the roads in, rescuers, people even trying to get their possessions back. And those who've stayed, lining every part of the green space we can find with tents to try and stay warm. The trees, perhaps in just enough space away from buildings that could crumble. A new world for children, smiling, neither oblivious nor somehow shaken too hard. Dusk and the smoke of fires settles with the dust to choke the streets. But back where we were an hour earlier, there has been relief. Ahmed was saved, pulled out from the hole, his family perhaps still inside. The medics keep asking him, did you hear any signs of life from them? No, he says. They say he cannot wait for them, that he must be treated after 86 hours entombed. The weight of grief, even as he is saved. His friend Jamil was pulled from the rubble earlier. I have been given life again, he says. I saw death before my eyes. I saw my own grave. The same twist of fate here. There have been noises deep inside the bottom of what was once an apartment block. First, out comes one man, Suleiman, age 21. The frantic work of medics here suggesting he did not make it. I think it's the impossibility of hope here that somebody could emerge after all this time alive from the wreckage that's driving this large crowd of rescuers. The most intense work done by hand right at the front of the rubble there. Out comes a four-year-old boy named Alpazlan, rescuers said. Alive, seen trying even to take off his oxygen mask. His father, Tolga, who follows shortly, does not seem to move. 89 hours in the rubble that both tore a world apart, but found enough mercy to spare its youngest.
Now continuing here as the stream of ambulances that pull up alongside the helipad. Helicopters land and often have to delay their takeoff because yet another individual frail. Some of them just pulled from the wreckage. Uh, they don't even know their name at times. Loads onto the helicopter, then taken off to other hospitals around Turkey, we understand. And of course, the large question here amongst medical officials about what are they going to do with the increasing numbers of dead to be catered for here, that number rising and the great urgency too of treatment of the slim number of survivors possibly being pulled out still. Don? All right, Nick Payton Walsh on Takia, Turkey for us this morning. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Caitlin? Yeah, also this morning, volunteers say that hundreds of thousands of people are now homeless. They have no place to go after that earthquake. CNN's Jamana Karachi is live in East Kandarun near a camp of those survivors who find themselves in this situation. Jamana, what are they saying to you? What's next for them? Caitlin, just absolutely heartbreaking here. Wherever you turn, just a story of so much loss and people now left in this situation where they can only think about surviving today. They don't even know what they're going to do next. Um, just to explain where we are, we're in the city of Iskenderun, which is part of Hatay province, one of the hardest hit provinces here uh, in Turkey. And everywhere around, around the city, you see so much destruction, uh, so many lives lost. People who are now starting to come to terms with the fact that they're never going to see their loved ones again. Um, and then you have the survivors, people who have survived the earthquake, but have been left with nothing. And they end up in places like this, these mini tent cities that the government has set up. Um, hundreds of families at this one here. Um, as you can see behind me, you've got these piles of clothes, shoes, blankets, and we've been seeing children, mothers, fathers coming through and just looking through these piles, trying to find shoes that fit for the kids, warm clothes, uh, blankets. And then on the other side here, you've got the Turkish military uh, distributing basic food parcels, water, uh, diapers for the kids. I mean, the, the needs are enormous here. Um, and the, the, uh, we've seen volunteers coming in, Caitlin, from all across the country. We spoke to a young man just a short time ago who said he's a volunteer. He came here from Istanbul. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he says, I'm here to help. And this is one of the government's priorities, to provide shelter, to feed people right now. But then you've also got the trauma. I mean, we've had people walking up to us and crying. One woman just came up and said, I lost my sister. And she's like, I have no mother and father and she was everything to me and now I've lost my sister and she just started crying. So, I mean, and you can imagine how many more stories like this are happening across this country right now, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, Caitlin. Yeah, and just to think about how they're grappling with that, the loss of of a sister, of a loved one, and now they have nowhere to go, no home, no clothes, no food. Jamana, I appreciate you being there. Thank you. So let's go to our colleague Salma Abdelaziz. She is live in Istanbul at an aid and distribution center. And Salma, when we saw you first there yesterday, we were all stunned at the scale, right? That is a hangar, and it's a huge aid operation. Poppy, this is a mammoth task to try to get help to those people that you heard Jomana talk about. I showed you one part of the operation yesterday. 
stacking boxes. Let me start showing you another part here. They're clapping. The reason why they are clapping, Poppy, is because every time they pack one of these trucks, that is a sense of accomplishment. They know they have been able to help families on the front. And these trucks, just look inside. They're going to start closing those doors. It's going to drive 12 hours to the front lines. Every volunteer here feels so proud because everything inside this truck, everything going to the front line is from Turks to Turks. And think about the basics here. Think about the basics that you need when you are packing this charity. They say they've gotten 2 million individual donations. I just, I'm just going to keep walking you through. I want you to see just the sheer number of stuff they have. 2 million individual donations. You can see mattresses. There's boxes of water. There's diapers for babies. There's heating equipment. Hundreds of volunteers here. Hundreds of people who feel like they have to get everything as quickly as they can. Once these trucks go out, they could make a difference as early as tonight. Poppy? Selma, thank you for being there again and to all of those people behind you clearly working around the clock. I mean, it's um, the scale is unbelievable and we have up just where it ranks as far as deadliest earthquakes, uh, number seven when you look at it. But still, the death toll is still climbing. When you think about it, when we saw um, the other day that it was 13,000, 15,000, and I said, imagine if that was in the United States or Europe, or I mean, remember right. what happened in Haiti. and entire cities. Yeah, and, and, and it's Istanbul, Turkey, Syria. I mean, mm -hmm. the scope of it, we still don't know yet. We still don't know. Well, I mean, and also just to look at the aid efforts. I mean, remember yesterday when they were talking about digging through the rubble? It was, a, it was entirely a volunteer aid group. It's not like there are all these officials who are able to go and help you dig through the rubble for your, for your loved ones, for their, for their bodies as this becomes more of a recovery effort. It's volunteers who are going and searching through rubble yeah. for their and, peers and every time their community. They, every time those, those folks who are providing, the, helping with the aid, they're applauding. Yeah. And, they, and then a pallet goes out to help people. I, I want to show our viewers this um, this image of a, because we haven't been able to show you a lot from Syria. Obviously, given the civil war there, it's so much harder to get aid. And the UN just finally got aid in there yesterday, right? So let's just, this is an image from um, Syria. This is actually an underground, a subterranean hospital. It's known as the cave. And one of the doctors there told the New York Times, our hospital has always been filled with tragedy, of course, because of the decade-long civil war. But look at it now. And he talked about a different enemy, and that enemy being, being this earthquake. Yeah. Um, one of my friends alerted me to a charity that um, they are, she's doing, and it's part of our impact to yeah. world. Yeah, it, it, you're watching and wondering how, how you can help um, all of these victims in Turkey and in Syria. You can go to CNN.com slash impact. We have a lot of vetted organizations there where you can help Turkish Philanthropy Fund also raising money with targeted fundraisers for relief, including aid for women who have lost their livelihoods and their homes and their families in this earthquake. And your friend also. My friend is a, she's a fund um, that goes up, but she helps with women. Her name is Gamze. Uh, and it's focused on creating sustainable communities for the women and their families to rebuild their lives to ensure that they have a path for recovery. And there it is up on your screen. Go to CNN.com yeah. slash Impact World or Turkish Philanthropy Funds mm -hmm. and donate. She is do she's starting with the first $100,000. Wow. And she's trying to raise $500,000 wow. to help um, the people there, but especially women and, and children to be able to feed their families and take care of them. They need all the help they can get. We'll stay on this. They certainly do. And by the way, cover it. we're going to continue to cover it. This is a story that no one can cover like CNN. That's right. the, just the sheer scope of our um, network 
this is what we do. And we're going to continue to cover it and bring these stories to you. In the meantime, we need to talk about what's happening here in the United States because he ran for his life on January 6th. And now the special counsel investigating Donald Trump wants to talk to the former Vice President Mike Pence as his probe escalates. Plus, President Biden just took a big swipe at Ron DeSantis as he was in Florida. What he said about someone who might be running against him in 2024. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, the special counsel that's investigating former President Trump and the January 6th insurrection has just made a pretty significant move, maybe one of the most aggressive of his investigations so far. A source confirms to me that Jack Smith has subpoenaed former Vice President Mike Pence. Smith is seeking for Pence to hand over documents, to personally testify about the interactions he had with Trump leading up to the 2020 election, leading up to January 6th, leading up to what happened after that. Of course, as we all know, Pence was hunted that day and had to run for his life from the mob of Trump supporters after he refused in his very ceremonial role to overturn President Biden's victory, something he could not legally do, something we've talked about since then. It's still notable, though, that they've taken this big of a move to go and subpoena the former vice president. They want to talk to him about this. It's not even just this, though. You know, the special counsel is doing the documents probe and the January 6th probe. Yep. And on the documents front, a uh, Pence aide said recently they expect the DOJ to conduct a more thorough search of Pence's home which, on that front. So a lot of going on. Which really uh, annoyed Pence's team, right? That they, that that got out there, that they were in discussions about further discussions about the home. They had been in discussions about that. They've also been in discussions about, he knew that they were going to want to talk to him. And, and they've been talking about it probably since November, I think. Well, that's a, a, maybe a bit of a contrarian view for me. I'm not surprised. It's my, I'm surprised that we're in this moment. But I'm not surprised that they want to talk to Mike Pence since he was so close. Yeah, right? but I mean, isn't the a, subpoena surprising? That not, it, no, I mean, no. It wasn't. It's, they, it's, they were having talks to work it out, right? Sometimes though, they, people want a subpoena, so then they're like, well, I had to testify, had to you testify. know, like I was yeah. there. I kind of forced my yeah. hand. Yeah. So I'm not, when I saw the news, I wasn't surprised that he was subpoenaed. I'm just surprised that we're in this moment as a country. And you saw when that video when they were saying, hang Mike Pence. It's still jarring to me that that moment actually happened, mm -hmm. you know, that we actually had people going into the Capitol trying to but that's a, a good point about not being surprised because Pence was like the only person who was right. talking one on one with Trump. Mm -hmm. yeah. But will he reveal what happened? Right. He that's may not. I think it's going to be a fight over that. And this morning, let's talk about President Biden now weighing in on potential opponents in the 2024 race for the White House. He says running against the former President Trump of Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis would essentially be the same thing. I do wonder if you think there would be a difference between running against one or the other candidate in terms of polarization? No, I don't think so, because I think that uh, they have a similar modus operandi, the, the similar way in which they, they work. Um, but I, I really don't know. I've never decided to run or not run based on who the opponent will be. All right, so let's get to the place where that man right there, the president resides, that's the White House this morning. Good morning to you, MJ Lee our White House correspondent. So, MJ, uh, President Biden insisting that he has not made his final decision on whether to run again in 2024, although, according to John King, folks like you and Caitlin and everyone, uh, it's kind of a done deal. He's just not saying it. <laughs> 
That's right. But, you know, Don, there's just not going to be an announcement until there's an announcement. But, yeah, every expectation is that a run for a second term is coming. It's just a matter of when that announcement is going to come. But, you know, now that we are through with the State of the Union, I think we're seeing just how quickly we are entering the 2024 cycle. Uh, I do want to play a sound of how the president responded last night when he was asked about the fact that there are plenty of Democrats across the country who would like to see a candidate that is not him. Look, do you know any polling is accurate these days? You all told me that there's no way we were going to do well in this off your election. I told you from the beginning we were going to do well. You all told me I couldn't win my the general election. We did well. I feel good about where we are. Um, this comment to me, Don, was incredibly telling and I think just actually one of the clearest signs that he is, in fact, gearing up for a second term. You know, President Biden and his top advisors have long been really sensitive to the fact that they have been underestimated, that they are treated like underdogs. And that time and time again, they have had to prove their skeptics and their critics wrong. Uh, obviously, the 2020 primary and then the midterms that we just saw happen are two prime examples. And this very much to me sounded like a President Biden who is pretty eager to try to prove critics wrong again, Don. Yeah, I, look, I think his first re-election speech was the State of the Union, but that's just me. Um, let's talk about the Brazilian President Lula making his first White House visit since being elected again. How can these two repair a relationship between the, the countries after really both, they both seen their democracies threatened? Yeah, you know, this is going to be a really fascinating visit and a really interesting bilateral meeting at that. You know, these two men in so many ways have confronted similar dynamics in their respective countries, right? The rise of political extremism, uh, right-wing populism and efforts uh, by protesters in their countries to uh, overturn election results. I mean, we saw that on such clear display in Brazil, obviously, some weeks ago, uh, when supporters of the ex-president tried to storm uh, government buildings. That event had such echoes to what happened here in the United States on January 6th. So uh, U.S. officials do say that those are the kinds of themes that the two men uh, will certainly talk about uh, in this meeting this afternoon. And for President Biden, this will be sort of like a turning of the chapter moment, at least when it comes to U.S.-Brazil relations, uh, because to say the least, you know, he did not have a close ally in the ex-Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro. All right. Thank you, MJ. Appreciate that. So ahead, uh, prosecutors building their case in the Alex Murdoch double murder trial, how they allege he tried to use his best friend to build an alibi. That's next. Witness testimony resumes in the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch this morning. An attorney who filed a wrongful death suit against Murdoch is expected to take the stand. The jury also hearing from Murdoch's best friend on Thursday. Let's go to our Randy Case. She is live in South Carolina again this morning. Randy, good morning. Uh, state's witnesses or prosecution witnesses have put a dent in Murdoch's timeline on that night that his wife and son were fatally shot. What did you learn in court? Good morning, Poppy. Some witnesses, certainly for the state, have placed Alec Murdoch at the murder scene around the time of the murders, even though he says he wasn't there. But this one witness who testified yesterday almost seemed to help the defense. He told the jury that he spoke to Alec Murdoch that night and he sounded normal. Listen. What time was that first call? Well, looks like it was at 9-11 uh, p.m. incoming from his cell phone. Alec Murdoch's best friend, Chris Wilson, testifying that Alec called him at 9-11 p.m. the night of the murders. 
That would have been about 20 minutes after prosecutors say Alec's wife and son were killed. Did he sound normal to you? Sounded normal, yes, sir. Normal is how he said Alec sounded. Wilson told Alec he had to call him back later. And what did he say? He said that's fine, no problem. That phone call could be key. Prosecutors seem to be trying to show Alec was allegedly trying to create an alibi after the murders. Chris Wilson said he called Alec back at 9.20 p.m. and Alec told him he was almost at his mom's house. All of this tracks with prosecutors saying Alec fired up his car and left the property where the murders took place about 9.06 p.m. that night. Alec said he was napping before that and was not with his family around the time they were killed. Wilson said Alec then sent him a text at 9.52 p.m. saying, call me if you're up. Wilson testified he called Alec back at 9.53 p.m. on the night in question to discuss a case. I told him I needed to talk to him, and he said, hey, that's cool, but I'm about to get back home. Can we, uh, can we talk tomorrow? And I said, sure, fine. That last phone call would have been just before Alec returned home, just before he says he found his wife and son bleeding. Alec called 911 at 10.07 p.m. On cross-examination, the defense leaned on Wilson to tell the jury what a loving family the Murdochs were. Would you agree that Alec's number one priority was his family? Yes, sir. appeared that way to me. When I say his family, I'm talking about Maggie, and Paul, and Buster. His whole family. And Poppy, I've also learned that Alec Murdoch's sister Lynn and his only surviving son Buster have been reprimanded by the court. Their seats have been moved further back from Alec Murdoch and the witness box. Apparently, Buster Murdoch made an obscene gesture toward a witness mm -hmm. while he was testifying. They've been warned they could be barred from the courtroom. Yeah, wow. Brandy Kay, thank you for that update. Also, in addition to that, coming up on CNN This Morning. Jake Tapper said. But what about what Jake Tapper said? I mean, what Jake Tapper said and Jake Tapper said. That was Florida Senator Rick Scott yesterday on the program as he repeatedly tried to use Jake Tapper to argue his case. We're going to have Jake Tapper on to tell us what he actually said. That's ahead. Did Jake Tapper say something? <laughs> All right, last night, quarterback Patrick Mahomes took home his second NFL MVP award. First, I want to thank God for giving me this platform and putting so many amazing people around me to help support this dream. That's Patrick Mahomes weighing in after he won ahead of Sunday's Super Bowl. CNN took a closer look at the quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, and how their fathers guided them and helped shape who they are today. CNN's Coy Wire is live in Glendale, Arizona. Coy, you know, RG3 was kind of the first person who brought this to my attention, saying this is something people should be talking about more, how they both have these influential fathers who helped really shape the foundation for, for what we're going to see on Sunday, I know you've been reporting on this. What have you learned about their stories? Yeah, Caitlin, we so often hear media pointing out how star athletes had a rough upbringing, terrible family life, dad wasn't around, but that same sort of energy should be given to shed light on the stories of stars like Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes, who do have strong families and have dads who've molded them into the inspiring young men we see today. I'm not the man I am um, on the field, off the field, um, the quarterback I am, the leader I am. 
Um, I'm none of that without him. My dad's a, it means a, he means the world to me, man. I mean, he's he set an example for me of how you have to go through this business. Patrick Mahomes' dad had an 11-year Major League Baseball career and taught his son how to be a pro and how to persevere through adversity. He dealt with a lot of positives and he was in the, in the MLB at an early age, but he also battled in, in the minor leagues for a long time and he just followed, kept following his dream and following his dream and he was able to make it to a World Series and it showed me that no matter if it's not, you're not having success at that moment, if you continue to follow your dreams, you'll, you'll make it. I just try to make sure that he knows that, you know, in his corner, I'm going to be there and as long as he goes out there and, and does the best he can, he, he'll never hear a gripe from me. Hertz's dad was his high school football coach, and Jalen's been learning about leadership from him since the days he was just a ball boy for his dad's teams. It's a blessing to watch a young man that, you know, developed a passion for a sport and really, really worked hard at every level and every turn. What does dad mean to you? For like, I'm a direct reflection of him and a spitting image of him in so many ways, and I, I love him and I respect from I respect him for. Um, how tough he was on me, um, how honest he was with me, and the man he raised. The love and support these Super Bowl star quarterbacks receive from their dads is shaping them into great leaders in their own right, not just for their teams. Mahomes is now a dad, father of two, leading, guiding, and while Hertz isn't a dad, he's well aware of the influence he can have on the next generation. You don't really realize the impact you're doing until you reflect on it. And I think to have these opportunities and, and be able to represent so many different people is something I definitely have in my heart when I'm out there playing. You know, I definitely never forget where I come from. And most importantly, I know that there are kids out there watching. There's always kids out there watching. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts finishing first and second in NFL MVP voting, respectively. And of all the players we've spoken to this week, uh, Caitlin, we asked them what makes these two young men special. The first thing they say, the very first thing they say is the way they lead. They have strong hearts and strong minds. They got those qualities from dad. I know. And you just can't help for, for, but root for them. And a salute to their dads. I mean, that is like truly an amazing story, Koi. I'm so glad you looked into that for us. Thank you. I love that. Coy, thank you. Awesome. I had lawyers in Oklahoma in a race against time to save the life of a death row inmate, Richard Glossop, before his execution date. The evidence, they say, proves his innocence. That is next. Well, this morning, Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop's lawyers are scrambling to save his life as his execution date nears. Glossop was sentenced to death in the 1997 murder-for-hire killing of his boss. He has always maintained his innocence. His lawyers say they can prove it. Our Bringing Grass reports. This is a collect call from Richard, an incarcerated individual at Oklahoma State Penitentiary. At least once a week, the defense team for Richard Glossop connect on the phone. The one thing that I wanted out of all of this is for people to know that I was innocent. Sometimes a catch-up, other times to talk strategy on how to save the life of the Oklahoma man on death row. What was the moment where you saw something and you were just, wow, this guy's innocent? We've always been looking for sort of a smoking gun. And we have found pieces along the way that have sort of added all up to everything. It's hard to not feel emotionally attached um, to the case, um, but also to Rich himself. Um, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary burden to try to save another human being's life. 
Glossop is staring down his ninth execution date, May 18th. It's the latest delay in a years-long string of reprieves and stays. This one coming at the order of Oklahoma's newly elected attorney general, who appointed a special counsel, saying in a statement, circumstances surrounding this case necessitate a thorough review. It's the right thing to do, to, to give somebody a chance to do a deep dive. In an exclusive phone call, Glossop says he just filled out paperwork for his last meal and burial plans when he got the news. It's really hard to describe the feeling because it's been so, so long. But we're finally here, so all you can have is hope. It's like having a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, finally. The former motel manager is twice convicted of being the mastermind in a murder-for-hire plot in the killing of his boss, Barry Van Treese, in 1997. It was another employee, Justin Sneed, who admitted to killing Van Treese. He received a life sentence in exchange for his testimony, accusing Glossop of concocting the plan. Glossop has always maintained his innocence. It's one of the scariest things you have to go through in life, I mean, especially if you're an innocent person. To know that they're going to take your life or something you had nothing to do with. Last year, a bipartisan group of 34 state lawmakers hired international law firm Reed Smith to conduct an independent investigation into the case. The effort, led by Republican State Representative Kevin McDougal, who's vowed to repeal the death penalty in Oklahoma if Glossop is executed. Our lawmakers who uh, in the past have not been able to say that they're against death row because it's not the Republican thing to do. Uh, a lot of them have now uh, come out and they're saying, hey, uh, we really need to look at this because what's happened to Richard Glossop is not right. And we need to make sure that in Oklahoma, our death penalty process is pure and that it's just. At the conclusion of Reed Smith's more than 300-page report, an investigator announced no reasonable juror hearing the complete record would have convicted Richard Glossop of first-degree murder. The findings went before the Oklahoma Criminal Court of Appeals last fall, but requests for a new hearing were denied. So these are documents that we brought back from the attorney general's office. Yes. Since the report's release, Reed Smith and Glossop's team say they have uncovered even more evidence proving his innocence, including paperwork showing Sneed tried multiple times to recant his testimony. He says there's something I need to clean up. Right. Right. That was shocking that? to me when I saw those papers uh, that uh, we always suspected that Justin Sneed really wanted to at some point tell the truth. But from those papers, we could tell that even though he was trying to, his lawyer at the time, Gina Walker, was telling him, don't do it. The Oklahoma County Public Defender's Office, responsible for Sneed's attorney at the time, declined to comment. What are you guys asking for? Bottom line is, Rich Glossop needs a new trial, one where all of the evidence is presented to a jury. And this guy uh, who's, who's looking at this, this independent counsel, has a chance to look at all of it. And then he and, will talk to the attorney general and they'll figure out what's the right thing to do in this case. So I have to be hopeful at this moment. Behind bars, Glossop writes poetry. He's gotten married and he prays. I've been through this so many times, but it's still scary. It will always be scary until they finally open this door and let me go. Uh, Bryn Gingras is with us. Bryn, excellent reporting. Thank you very much. So the person who actually committed the murder admitted to it yeah. because of his testimony against Glossop got life in prison. Glossop, who no one denies was not even in the room, 
during the murder is on death row and about to be executed. Is that justice? I mean, listen, I don't think Richard Glossop's defense team thinks it's justice. And I mean, if you see that story, they are uncovering evidence still. This man has been screaming his innocence for 26 years. And it wasn't until Don Knight and his team said, OK, let's listen. Let's take a look into this. And also a change in power in Oklahoma said we believe in full transparency. We're going to give you more documents. They got some last summer. I mean, that's how long they've been waiting to get some of the paperwork on their hands. So is it justice? Who knows? But here's one thing I really want to point out. The paralegal for the defense team, Mary, she says, you know, it's a safe place to believe that our justice system is right. But if people say they're innocent and say, look, I have the documents to prove it, maybe we should start listening. And that's what they're asking for is just yeah. a new trial to take a look at new evidence. What, so where does this go from here? Yeah, it's unclear. This is honestly unprecedented in Oklahoma that the AG appointed this special counsel. He could bring in the governor. He could make a decision to bring this to the lower courts, the district courts. They also have a, a petition and appeal into the Supreme Court about what the Criminal Court of Appeals decided uh, just last fall. So it's very unclear. It is important to note that the AG did this whole process, appointing the special prosecutor with after talking and consulting with the Vantree's family, uh, we actually reached out to the Vantree's family as well, but they didn't yeah. want to comment that on the story. That is the victim's family. Yes. Just before you go, I, I have been so struck following this case for a few years now um, and how many conservatives, very conservative Oklahoma Republican lawmakers have been screaming that Glossop needs yeah. a new trial. You need to look at this new evidence. People who are very pro-capital punishment are saying, wait, stop, don't do this, yeah. right? And, and I just wonder what you make of that and the fact that there has been new evidence during this delay. Yeah, people whose elections could be jeopardized with this opinion. Uh, Don Knight, he's doing it pro bono. Uh, you know, these are people who firmly believe that he should be set free. As far as the sort of bipartisan effort here, it's so interesting, especially in such a rich red state. Yep. Uh, and there are there is some progress, right? There's this thing called Death Watch that Richard describes to me as you're in a cell for 30 days before you're executed, where you just have a book and a blanket. You have 24 hour surveillance. You actually watch mock execution. They tell you what's going to happen to you. Wow. That used to be 30 days ahead of your execution date in Oklahoma. Now it's seven. So there are some minor changes. But, of course, this case is so big in that state. We'll see what happens out of it. Ren, thank you all again right. for thank all you. that reporting and all that work. Don. All right. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Jen. Hope is fading in the ongoing search for survivors of the devastating earthquake that rocked Turkey and Syria. Chef Jose Andres is there. He's going to join us live. More CNN this morning to come after the break. We're heartbroken. My brother's whole family is under the rubble. Not a single one was found alive. May God have mercy on them. We were hoping to retrieve them alive, but given the condition of the building, there are only 20 centimeters between the ceiling and the ground. So in this situation, we hope for the best, but we must be realistic. Boy, oh boy, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. That man you just saw, you just heard from, lost his brother, eight nephews, in that catastrophic earthquake that devastated Turkey and Syria, hope is fading to find any more survivors as a death toll nears 22,000 victims. We have correspondents live on the ground across the disaster zone. We're going to speak with Turkish basketball star Enes Kanter and chef Jose Andres, who's helping feed people as a massive humanitarian crisis unfolds. Plus this. Hey, 
The special counsel who's investigating Donald Trump in January 6th now wants to talk to Mike Pence. CNN is learning what he is seeking from the former vice president. Also, the district attorney in Memphis says that he is doing a deep dive into past incidents involving the five police officers charged with murdering Tyree Nichols. We begin with the humanitarian catastrophe in Turkey and Syria. The scope of the destruction, staggering. The pictures, devastating. And the death toll, just growing. 21,000 so far, 719 people now confirmed dead after the devastating earthquake. Thousands more are still missing, possibly dead or dying beneath the rubble. Hope is running out to find any more survivors, but this morning, four days after the quake, search teams rescued a 10-year-old boy who was still alive in a collapsed building that was in Turkey. But grim reality is setting in. In the Syrian village, one Syrian village, entire families are believed to be dead under piles of concrete. Heartbroken villagers have been helping search teams dig through the debris by hand. Our Jamana Karache is live on the ground in the disaster zone for us. Jamana, devastating. Absolutely devastating, Don. You know, we're out here in the city of Iskandarun. This is a port city that's part of uh, Hatay province, one of the most affected uh, uh, provinces uh, in the country. And here, this is a makeshift camp that has been set up by the authorities for uh, people who are now homeless. And what you've got here is about 150 or so tents that have been set up by the country's emergency and disaster management agency. You've got people who are registering and speaking to the authorities here. They say that they are now working around the clock. As you can see right now, you've got um, they're digging the ground. They are preparing for more and more tents. They say that this entire area is going to turn into a tent city. Uh, the needs are enormous. This is a massive earthquake zone. As you know, there are Millions of people who have been impacted by this. The Turkish government has been trying to meet the needs of the people. You've got the Turkish military here also involved in the relief effort. They have been distributing uh, food, blankets, water, diapers to people who lost everything and now are homeless. And it's just not enough. We've heard this from Turkish authorities saying that they need all the help they can get. And Don, we met a lot of young people who've come in from different parts of the country saying they're here, they want to help, they don't know what they're going to be doing. They just jumped on buses, came down here just because they want to help. And uh, speaking to a lot of the families here, they say they don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know what they're going to do next. Right now, they're glad that they're alive. And they say at least now they have shelter. They were sleeping out in the open, in the freezing cold for the past few days. And, you know, we're talking about people here, Don, speaking to them. They've not only lost their homes. So many people here have lost family members. So you can imagine the kind of trauma that they are now also dealing with while living out here with nothing. Material things, one thing, but when you lose family members, that is everything. Jamana Karacha, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Joining us now is Chef Jose Andres, founder of World Central Kitchen. His team is on the ground right now helping in Turkey. Here you see uh, random places where people put tents. You can see uh, in different parts they are building more tents. But again, this is only <laughs> early day three of this earthquake.
Congress's organization traces its roots back to the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Chef Andres, thank you so much, not only for being here, but for what you do all around the world in these disasters. I know you have chefs from all across Turkey that are also helping you. What are you facing? Well, we we are facing uh, a very, very big task. Uh, uh, I remember in 2010, even I arrived there only a few weeks after in Port Prince in Haiti. This was one city, one city where American international community came to help Port Prince and the Haitians. Now we need to think that this is like 10, 12 Haitis or more at the same time across 300 plus kilometers. Uh, the disaster is big. This is going to need everybody hands on as the search and rescue seems is already ending. Uh, it's going to be this important phase of providing relief to people. Take a look where I am. I'm on my way up north to uh, Ibistan. I came just from uh, Maras and uh, I was the other day in, in, in Eastern Drum where, where, where you are. And this fault alone makes a meal not only what feeds your body, but in a way it's also what warms you up in the very cold nights that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Turkish people are experiencing. Yeah. I guess a big question, we see you time and time again in places like this. We saw you in Ukraine, now you're dealing with this. When you ha are facing so much destruction that we've been covering all morning, how do you do it? How, where do you start even? Well, in this one, it's been a big challenge. Where do we start? And where do we go? Because everybody's in. What is amazing is this, that in the worst moments of humanity, I say all the time, the best of humanity shows up. So organizations like us, we try always to start our own kitchens, but at the same time, look for people restaurants, individuals that own their own, sometimes with no experience before. They decide to step up and start doing something. So right now we are partnering with those people, those Turkish people that are starting the feeding and that's what we come as Catholics. We have experience. Without them, we wouldn't be able to move so quickly. And together we can not only move quicker, I think what's in the kitchen today, we're gonna do 70,000 meals, but this feels like you're only putting your finger in a, in a hole, and there you have hundreds of other holes to accomplish. So what do we do is to have one base, then to have two, then to have three, we are gonna be moving to Gaziantep to build a new kitchen there. We are gonna be, we're gonna be flying if things God willing uh, from Adana by helicopter, to get to Iristan, Iristan, because it's a very difficult place to reach. It's a very long drive and every day doesn't make sense. We already know we have a kitchen in Iristan. I'm, I'm one hour away and we are already bringing five trucks to make sure that we provide to that kitchen that they are already functioning all the food they need, gas, pots, pans, obviously utensils uh, uh, for people to eat and the bowls to serve the meals. This is what we do. We start taking one step at a time, one project at a time, one kitchen at a time. We have teams now all across seeing where we can be providing help so we can increase the numbers every day, hopefully doubling the output of food we can, we can cook. So, Jose, let's just be honest about this. I mean, I think this is uh, overwhelming for um, a lot of reasons. You have tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy. You have a natural disaster. 
right, with the earthquake. Then you have a civil war that's going on uh, in Syria. And then you have this brutally cold weather, uh, and among other things. So the, just the sheer nature of this, it's tough even for you and for rescuers. Can you just talk to us about the challenges that folks are facing there? Well, uh, as I was here in Mirage yesterday night until 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, distributing food, uh, and we obviously, we were just one organization of hundreds and hundreds of people doing it. People that were cooking and providing this at meals. In front of every home that you saw totally destroyed, becomes like a mini city where you have the family members around a fire. And they are there because they lost somebody. And they are still hopeful that they will find that person alive. At the same time, you have next to them the rescue workers working 24 hours a day without a sleep with the dogs. That next to them is where sometimes they sleep or use they stop for one hour of eating something so they can keep going back to work because they know every minute pounds. Uh, at the same time, you hear people crying when they stop because they already found the body of the loved one and their hope of finding them alive, it's gone. And people that have nothing, people that have sometimes poor or sometimes uh, they don't have access to cash or they don't have access uh, to money, that makes everything even more and more complicated. We are seeing people just sleeping on their cars. We have thousands of people sleeping in their cars because if even some buildings you may see that they seem okay, we need to understand that people are very afraid to go into a building to sleep when the building next to them collapsed completely. So the situation obviously is huge. I think the Turkish government and FAEG, the emergency services of Turkey, I think they've been doing a good job, but we need to understand that this is so massive that we will not be able to comprehend it until probably a few weeks from now. This is one of the biggest earthquakes in the number of uh, buildings collapse and in the extension. So, yes, Turkey needs all the help that America, Europe, and the rest of the world can provide to them. Yeah. We're glad that you are always there. Always there. I mean, no matter always. where in the world. Jose Andres, thank you. And we appreciate you. Be safe and check back in with us. Uh, we'd like to, to hear from you. And we have to remember, everyone, we're talking about people. If you put this number up, I mean, every time I see this number, it's just startling. We're talking about people, right? 21,000, almost 22,000 people, and the number still climbing. And that's the, that's the deaths. They're, right. The injured is 75,000 plus that we yeah. know of so far. Yeah. It's staggering, right? And when people see these numbers, they want to help. Here's where you can go to find ways that you can help. Go to CNN.com impact. We have a whole list of organizations you can help there. Um, in just minutes, we will be joined by former NBA player, human rights activist, Ness Cantor, freedom, why he hasn't been able to reach his family members in Turkey. Yeah, we have a lot of questions for him. Also this morning, we're tracking a development out of Washington as former Vice President Mike Pence has now been subpoenaed by the special counsel who's investigating former President Trump's failed attempt to overturn the 2020 election, the actions he took surrounding January 6th. A source tells me that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is now seeking documents and testimony. He wants to hear from Pence about the interactions that he had with Trump leading up to the deadly Capitol insurrection. CNN's Paula Reid is also covering the story, and she joins us now. Paula, I guess the big question is, how do we think Pence is going to respond to this subpoena? Are they going to fight it? 
I think we might see some fights, Caitlin, over questions of executive privilege. But we know this subpoena comes after months of negotiations between the Pence team and the Justice Department. And Pence's team had signaled that he was, in fact, willing to at least provide some information. And the fact that we're seeing a subpoena right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's been some sort of impasse. As we've seen in other investigations, there are some witnesses who would prefer to be subpoenaed so as not to appear to be just voluntarily cooperating against the former president. Now, in terms of executive privilege, he has made it a little more difficult for himself because he wrote a lot about January 6th in his memoir. And you cannot write about something in a book and then say, well, I can't discuss that same thing before a grand jury. But I would expect that there will be some limits on what he is willing to share. And so far, former President Trump's team indicates that they do not intend to, at this point, challenge the subpoena. But they could, of course, always change their mind. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do decide. And Polly, you and our colleague Zach Cohen are also reporting on another person who worked for Trump who has now been subpoenaed by this special counsel, Jack Smith. What is this with Robert O'Brien being subpoenaed? Well, we have the national security advisor, former national security advisor Robert O'Brien, being subpoenaed in both investigations, both the investigation into the 2020 election and efforts to subvert the outcome, and also the investigation into the retention of classified documents that were found down at Mar-a-Lago. Luke O'Brien could potentially be a really valuable witness. He was a top official in the administration. He considered resigning after January 6th, but didn't. He stayed on. So you could talk about what was going on in the administration after January 6th, and the national Security Council should have been involved in the handling of classified materials. He might be able to provide some insight into how those documents wound up down at Mar-a-Lago. We've also learned that investigators have talked to former acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf. And all this goes to say, Caitlin, that this is a very active and ongoing investigation. I talked to sources in Trump world. You talked to sources in Trump world. They would all very much like us to believe that this is all done. It's wrapping up. But in fact, they're very actively pursuing new witnesses, some very high profile ones. Yeah, and bringing them in to speak to them directly. Paula Reed, we'll see who's next. Thank you. <laughs> And now to the new developments in the investigation to the beating death of Tyree Nichols, a police document revealing that a sixth Memphis officer who was fired last week lied in statements about the incident leading to Nichols' death. Meantime, prosecutors say that they will review all previous cases handled by the five ex-Memphis police officers who are now facing murder charges. Sina Shimon Prokofiev joins us now this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. The ripple effect, and then yeah. it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and bigger. it will keep getting bigger. And this is significant, certainly, by the district attorney to review every case that these five officers were ever involved in, arrested, uh, someone they may have arrested, some something they have witnessed. So it's significant because what could happen is dozens and dozens of cases could potentially get dismissed as a result of this and likely will get dismissed because you can't use these officers as witnesses any longer. So they're in the process of doing that. We don't exactly know how many cases the DA is going to review, but also it calls into question whether or not they're going to review other cases involving the Scorpion unit. Because anytime you're going to go before a jury, let's say, and you're going to say, well, officer, where did you work? Well, I worked in the Scorpion unit. It's going to create problems for them now for quite some time. Credibility and issues. The credibility issues. I mean, these officers have no credibility, and we are yet to hear about more officers who potentially face termination as well. Could be a lot of cases there. Yeah, certainly could be a lot of cases there. All right, Shimon, keep us updated. Thank you. Thank you. Also this morning, a group of governors are throwing their support behind President Biden, re President Biden's re-election run, even though he hasn't announced it yet. 
Even though there are polls also favoring another nominee, one of those governors, Governor Jared Polis of Colorado, is going to join us next to weigh in. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. When I called Republicans out on this on the State of the Union, it sounded like they started yelling liar, not all, but started yelling liar, liar. And I said, that means you all are for keeping Social Security? They all stood up, said, yeah. I said, we, well, we got a deal. That was President Biden in Florida yesterday, taking aim at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Senator Rick Scott in their own state. He talked about DeSantis and Scott at times wanting to deny access or maybe eliminate Medicare and Social Security. Over 1.1 million people in Florida would be eligible for Medicaid if Governor Sanders just said, I agree to expand it. It's not, this, this, isn't, this isn't calculus. The very idea the Senator from Florida wants to put Social Security and Medicare in the chopping block every five years, I find to be somewhat outrageous, so outrageous that you might not even believe it. Biden criticizing DeSantis, who could be, you know, a GOP presidential contender. The president is himself edging toward a 2024 reelection announcement. So here to talk about all of this is Colorado's Democratic governor, Jared Polis. He and the other governors from across the country are going to be meeting with President Biden actually at the White House later this morning. Good morning, governor. And thank you for joining us this morning. You're going to the White House today. I guess the first question is, are you going to be supporting President Biden when he runs in 2024? Good morning, Caitlin. Uh, you're getting a little ahead of yourself there. Uh, I think we, we all think the president is planning to roll out a very exciting re-election campaign. He certain, certainly did great. He reminded us of the master that he is uh, when he took it to the Republicans and really went off script to say, well, we got a deal here. You're, you're uh, agreeing not to do something, namely cut Social Security and Medicare that Republicans had been talking about for decades. So uh, that really put them on the spot. Very effective. Uh, this man's a pro and we look forward to his plans. But if he does run in 2024, which I'm told is when, not if, you will be supporting that? Uh, he'll have widespread support. I'll certainly do the best that I can to make sure that we deliver the state of Colorado as we did uh, four years ago for the president. Uh, what a historic four, you know, three years so far, of course. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, American Rescue Act, a lot of the work that we're able to get done at the state level, these record uh, investments in public health, uh, investments in, uh, in reducing homelessness, in public safety, these are transformational investments that we're able to do because of the American Rescues Act. So, you know, the president doesn't always get all the credit, but know that the work that the governors are doing on the ground, even Republican governors, a lot of those resources are thanks to President Biden. And I want to talk about your second term in a moment. But if Biden does run, it's likely it's going to be potentially a matchup of Biden and Trump again. What do you make of the idea that we may see them running against each other again, this third presidential run that we're seeing from former President Trump? Well, President Biden has shown one time that he can uh, defeat uh, President Trump, and I know he's going to show it again. Uh, I think that President Trump is really a threat to the democracy. Beyond the issues that we face, he's so in such little regard for the truth, for the integrity of the elections, uh, above and beyond the issues that people quabble over. I, I think that's an additional reason it's particularly important to make sure that he never returns to the Oval Office. He may not. We don't we don't know, actually, that he's actually even going to be the Republican nominee. He's certainly the front runner. But you heard President Biden there invoking Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. You're a governor as well. One of the things that DeSantis has been in the headlines for recently was saying that this advanced placement course on African-American studies, he believed, imposed a political agenda. You're a governor. Is that how you would spend your time? 
Yeah, first of all, how bizarre that he's governor of a state even bigger than Colorado, and apparently he's reading AP curricula. I mean, I, I took AP courses in high school 30 years ago, and I barely read the curricula then. I certainly don't as governor. So I, I don't know exactly what he's doing. Secondly, these are just optional courses that advanced students can take, um, and, and, and you know, if people want to take them, they will. But certainly it's not the role of a governor to be dictating curricula of advanced AP courses, a private organization. I mean, I just thought that whole thing was extremely bizarre when I saw it. You referenced the president's address Tuesday night in Washington, his State of the Union address. There was one line there, and you know, we've talked about the Republicans in the back and the forth there, but there was one line that he made about energy. I know you've talked and focused on energy prices a lot in your state. I want to play that moment of what President Biden said. And when I talk to a couple of them, they say, we're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And that's going to exceed <laughs> and beyond that. We're going to need it. Governor, I don't think it was supposed to be a laugh line. What would you make of the president and his comments about at least another decade? It's a good way to talk about it. I mean, the truth is we're rapidly weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels. Is there going to be demand for oil in 10 years? There will be. There'll probably be some demand in 20 years. Uh, in Colorado, our goal is 100% renewable energy by 2040. Uh, I think we'll reach it. We'll be at 80% by 2030. Already in Colorado, about 12% of cars sold are electric vehicles. But yes, oil and gas are international commodities. There's likely to continue to be a market for it in 10 years. Probably in 20 years, if you're asking me 30 or 40, I think we'll largely be off of those fossil fuels with lower cost, more reliable renewable energy. What do you make of the White House's climate plan, but also their energy plan. Some have said there's a disconnect between what they're seeking for those two to look like, between reality and what their ambitions are. Well, I think they've been very attentive to the need to uh, keep gas prices low for Americans, releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, they're working on where and, and how we can drill safely in Colorado. We've been upping the bar on reducing emissions around the uh, oil extraction process even more. So I think it's very important because, you know, what people pay for gas, for heating, for electricity really hits their bottom line. Colorado consumers, just like across the country, have had a spike in natural gas prices the last few months. They're finally coming down now. What we want to do is make ourselves immune to that in the future by weaning ourselves off of natural gas, which can always double, triple, quadruple in price when there's external events like a war in Europe. Yeah, those price hikes can be really impactful for families. You recently laid out your vision for a second term. You put affordable housing right at the top. This is something that so many people, not just in your state, are struggling with, but all across the United States. And you said uh, finding an affordable place to live will lead, uh, or not being able to, uh, to find one leads to more traffic, air pollution, economic challenges. How do you fix that? Yeah, it's a big deal. And, you know, Colorado is a great place to live. That's the good news. The bad news is the secret's out. And so demand has skyrocketed in not just Colorado, many other states as well that people are moving to because they are great places to live. That's pushed the average home price up. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we have more quantity of housing, but not just anywhere, right? We can't just uh, have this exurban sprawl, more traffic on the roads, worse air quality, not sustainable from a water perspective. We need, we need housing near transit-oriented development and near where the jobs are, so people uh, can get to work without having to have a lot of traffic. So we're really looking at a thoughtful approach to land use that's sustainable, that saves water, and provides affordable units for rent and for purchase for, for new Coloradans as well as Coloradans who've been here for generations. Yeah, I know that's extremely important. You've got a meeting at the White House today that you have to get to, Governor. Thank you for sharing a few moments with us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.
21,000 lives lost after earthquakes rocked Turkey and Syria. Many people are still unaccounted for. Up next, we're going to be joined by the former NBA star Ennis Cantor, Freedom. How his family in Turkey is doing and why he can't physically be there to comfort them right now. I think it's the impossibility of hope here that somebody could emerge after all this time alive from the wreckage that's driving this large crowd of rescuers. The most intense work done by hand right at the front of the rubble there. The impossibility of hope, as you just heard our correspondent Nick Payton Walsh say, as we look at these heartbreaking images continuing to come from the devastating earthquakes in Syria and in Turkey, more than 21,000 people have been killed. That number is likely to rise. There are lives that are still being saved, if you can believe it, though. Take a look at this. This is a mother and daughter being pulled out of the rubble in Turkey 92 hours after the earthquake struck. The daughter's waving. You see her there on the stretcher as she is carried to an ambulance. Nearby, two sisters, 15 and 13 years old, also rescued from the rubble in the 99th and 101st hour since the earthquake. Joining us now is former NBA player and human rights activist Inez Cantor Freedom. He is a Turkish American who has a lot of family in Turkey. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and good morning. Um, we can't put Thank our, you for having me. Of course, we cannot put ourselves in your shoes. But can you tell us how your family is? You've been able to reach some, but not all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely been one of the most biggest heartbreaking disasters that Turkey ever faced. And uh, I have been trying to reach out to some of my family members, actually, in Turkey, and we have not heard from them yet. Um, I mean, close to, you know, between Turkey and uh, Syria, close to 22,000 people uh, died. And so right now, my condolences, prayers and thoughts are definitely uh, with them for sure. You can't get in touch with your family, but you have been speaking to people and you know people there who have suffered losses. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, well, I am not allowed to really uh, communicate with my family because of the Turkish government, but I have a, a brother actually plays basketball in Japan. So I have been communicating with my uh, brother and he, he told me that he has not heard uh, from my uh, sister's uh, husband's side. So it's been uh, three days. We still try to uh, reach out to them, but we haven't uh, heard them yet. And not only my family, but there are so many of my friends, actually my friend's family that lives uh, in Turkey that has uh, passed away, unfortunately. Um, And right now we are trying to do whatever we can to help those uh, people over there. How can we help? Uh, well, I mean, I start, we started this. I don't want to take uh, uh, credit, but we started this uh, initiative it's, uh, with Embrace Relief uh, Foundation. Um, and we are actually planning to collect around $1 million the first seven days. And we're trying to uh, send them over to the Turkey. Right now, it's, I believe, close to 600000 already. It's in wow. uh, three days. So, I mean, we're trying to do best uh, we, we can to just help those people because they need our help. And as uh, I know um, you have been, um, mm-hmm. listen, you say what you mean, right? And if, if something is near and yeah. dear to your heart, or if you're inspired by it, you talk about it. And there's mm-hmm. a reason you're wearing that shirt you're wearing. Of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunately, there are so many heartbreaking stories that are happening all around the world. I mean, starting with Ukraine and uh, some of the other countries around the world. And this is definitely important. You know, we have to stop, uh, you know, fighting, stop the wars and start building uh, bridges between uh, countries and people. Yeah, and I said because there's a, the civil war that's going on in Syria right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's yep, right. Exactly. As I understand it, some of your family, some of your friends here in America have lost just an extraordinary amount of family members in Turkey. Yeah. 
Just one of my friends I talked to yesterday actually has lost 11 members of his uh, family. So uh, many people are uh, suffering. But what gave me so much hope was the international community. Obviously, it's not a lie that it's not easy to work with the Turkish government, but uh, it gives me so much hope when international community is trying to do best they can to uh, send help, send uh, rescue teams. And uh, recently, President Biden just sent a, a plane over there to help those people who need the most. But it does give me so much hope to just seeing all these good communities doing best that they can to help uh, people over there. You're right. As Chef Jose Andres told us, you yeah. in these situations see the best of humanity as well from him, from you, from so many people. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's Cantor Freedom. Very of course. Much. Thank you for having me. We Thank appreciate you. you standing up for everything, including this especially. And sorry about your loss. We hope that no. you get word and it's good news. Thank you so much. That, thank you. It means a lot. Thank, thank you. And that's a reason he can't speak with his yeah, family because, because of he stood up to the Erdogan. There you go. So outspoken. Uh, yeah. Regime. Well, you can go to embracerelief.org to help victims of the earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. Also go to CNN.com slash impact. Many ways you can help there. Also this morning, we're tracking another international development. What officials are revealing about that Chinese spy balloon's capabilities? You'll want to hear that. And guess what, guys? <laughs> this is like going to wake you up. You may not even need coffee or caffeine for the rest of the day because we sat down with the incomparable icon, Shirley Ralph, ahead of her Super Bowl pregame performance. I'm sure you planned out how you're going to sing every note. How are you going to sing it? Can, yeah. can you give us a little sneak preview? <laughs> All right, everyone, only a week into Black History Month, there's no shortage of history making happening right now. Coming to the end of the third quarter, LeBron James, a shot in history, and there it is! LeBron stands alone! <laughs> LeBron James becoming the NBA's all-time leading scorer. He broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record of 38,387 points set nearly 40 years ago. And Beyonce, no longer just Queen B, she's now the queen of the Grammys with 32 wins over the course of her career. She now has the most Grammy awards of any artist. Well, that same night, Viola Davis completed the holy grail of entertainment awards when she won a Grammy for her audiobook, Finding Me. She has now achieved EGOT status with an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and two Tony Awards. And St. Thomas University in Florida, renaming its law school after civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump. Will Smith making a rare public appearance to honor Crump. That's according to university. It is the first law school in the country to be named after a practicing black attorney. I feel like I'm the most blessed man on the face of the earth today. We have to make the law matter for all of us, the least of us. If the law doesn't protect the least of us, then it doesn't protect any of us. And we together, brothers and sisters, have to make it equal justice under the law. Well, congratulations to him. And on Tuesday, Hagerstown, Maryland, elected its first black mayor. Takesha Martinez succeeds Emily Keller who made history herself as the city's first female mayor. 
And the world's largest naval base now has its first black female commanding officer. Captain Janet Days assumed the role at Naval Station Norfolk in Virginia last week. And last month, Summer Lee became Pennsylvania's first black congresswoman. Days later, Wes Moore was sworn in as Maryland's first black governor, only the third black governor in our nation's history. And finally, this weekend in Arizona, we will witness the first Super Bowl in history to feature two black starting quarterbacks. Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes will face off against Philadelphia Eagles, Jalen Hurts. And the Chiefs, if the Chief wins, well, Mahomes could become the first black quarterback in the NFL to win multiple Super Bowls. And if the Eagles win, Hurts could be just the fourth black quarterback to take home the championship title. And there will be more black excellence at the Super Bowl this weekend. Emmy Award winner, OG, dream girl, and entertainment icon Cheryl Lee Ralph will lift every voice when she sings the, the black national anthem before kickoff. I sat down with her ahead of her performance. Watch this. You're an original dream girl. You were on Broadway. You spent most of your life, a lot of your life, doing live performances and singing. I'm shocked that you're nervous. Well... I, I have to tell you, Don, when you think about the fact that it is, what, 250 million people watching the mm -hmm. Super Bowl? I mean, that's more than soccer. That's more than basketball. That's more than any sport. And they asked me to sing this song, which is going to be included for the first time in the stadium as part of the opening mm -hmm. of this incredible moment and I was just like oh my god yeah. so yeah I was nervous you're making yeah. history you I really are making history is Phoenix ready for you you think the world's ready for you well you know what Don I finally feel like the world and I are catching up to each other mm -hmm. you know for so long you know with everything happening now I feel very much just like myself still just like Cheryl Lee and still saying the things I've always said my microphone has been unmuted, and now people can actually hear me, and it is a great experience. Just amazing. Everybody should feel what I've been feeling since winning that Emmy. Yeah, you won the Emmy for Abbott Elementary. You have um, Barbara Howard on Abbott Elementary. And, and it, look, I, maybe some people in the world are just finding out about Cheryl Lee Ralph. I go all the way back to a piece of the action when you were Barbara Hanley. Oh, wow. I, look, I yes. knew you then, and I knew you on Dreamgirls. So, um, you know, your mic for me has always been unmuted. And I'm happy with, yeah, what's happening to you now. So, but let's talk about this. You're making history. The importance of lift every voice and sing, especially mm. during Black History Month. Absolutely. When you think about that song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, it, you know, it has a very interesting history, the National Black Anthem, because it was written by a Bahamian, and he had written that song for Marcus Garvey. Somehow it didn't all come together, but it was presented, and now we know it as the National Black Anthem. And you, you will hear people throughout the diaspora, not just in America, who know these lyrics, who know the power of this song that tells us through it all, through the dark past, through the hope of the present, let us march on till the victory, victory. of liberty, the victory of justice for all has been one major, incredibly powerful song. So how are you gonna sing it? I'm sure you planned it out, and so I'm sure you planned out how you're gonna sing every note. 
How are you going to sing it? Can, well, can you give us a little sneak preview or you don't I feel can't give you a little sample, not at all. The NFL has asked me to please just save it for us for Sunday. But I can tell you that Adam Blackstone, who's been my musical director on this NFL journey to the Super Bowl, he said, Miss Ralph, all we need to do is to give people this song in a way that they can hear these lyrics at a time when all of us are together, that we can all be brought together knowing that each one of us as human beings is to be valued no matter our, our culture, no matter our color, no matter who we are, that we are human beings. Let us come together and march on till liberty is won. You have done so much. It is Black History Month. We have so many people like you who are making history, as you will, during the Super Bowl. Uh, LeBron James, who made history as he did for scoring. Beyonce making history as she did for her Grammys. What is this? Where are we in this moment, Cheryl Lee Ralph? We are at a time that we must treasure and learn from because I think that we are really at the precipice of major change. Change is never easy, and for some people it doesn't come soon enough. We have been working at this since 1619. At some point, we must, in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., be judged upon the content of our character and not the color of our skin. When you see a young black man, you have got to see him as a human being and not a target for rage, not a target for a bullet, not a target for a fist or a beat down, but as a human being, just like any other human being on this planet. And now is the time when we get to change, get some people's thinking and understanding that when we say wake up everybody, that is to be woke. That is not to be a bad thing. There are people out there that want to turn the whole idea of wokeness, which is about being awake to change, being awake to accepting people, especially people of color, black and brown people. Be awake to that because teaching our history is teaching American history. There are some people that say you don't need to teach black history. Well, you need to learn about what has been given to this country since 1619, especially by people of African descent. Can you so offer, much to learn. So much to learn. Can you offer us, Miss mm -hmm. Ralph, some advice? Um, because there are a lot of folks out there who are wondering how you radiate joy so much, especially considering that you're so connected to what's happening in the world. Have you been connected to what happened in Memphis to Tyree Nichols and so many other things that we are dealing with in the culture? Black voices being muted. How are you able to radiate so much joy all the time? And what is your advice to us on how we can perhaps mimic and do what you do? Oh, wow. You know, I think everybody's got to take their own personal journey in this. But as a child of the 60s, when I saw terrible things happening in the streets across America, in the American South, when I saw children not much older than myself being beaten, being shot, being killed in 
awful, heinous ways when I saw great leaders being assassinated and shot down one right after the other. There were my parents who told me that I must work to be the best Cheryl Lee that I could be because there is power in one human being. But that human being must acknowledge their power work towards being their best self and share that with the rest of the world. And that's been my journey. So honestly, I keep hope alive. I keep living by faith. I keep it within me. And I'm, I'm able to share it with my two children, Etienne and Coco, and, and they will share it with their children should they ever choose to give me grandchildren, <laughs> I mean. So I know that you can't do it. You're going to serenade us on Sunday, so I will serenade yes. you now, and I will sing. Come on. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmony of yes. liberty. Let our rejoicing rise. Thank you, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Thank you. I love you. You know, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was. I felt like I was doing it in the taping. I'm. Oh, now why did I do that? Well, you made our day, our, our week. Uh, yeah. Look, they, I, we sang that every, not every day, but we sang it a lot. Uh, I went to an all-black Catholic school when I was a kid. I was fortunate enough to be able to go to parochial school, and it was an all-black school because this was right after mm-hmm. desegregation in the South. Yeah. Um, I think it was maybe ten years or so that my high school was desegregated before I went to it. But wow. um, so I learned that song, and when it started to become the Black National Anthem. But I do have to say, Cheryl Lee Ralph is a force that many people are just discovering, and she's not new. I mean, she started with a piece of the action um, with Sidney Poitier was her first role, yeah. and, and Bill Cosby back in the late seventies and the early eighties. With, she was one of the original dream girls. And so most people don't realize that she is a, she has a voice. She can sing. She's not just an actress. But I love what she said, that she and the world are finally catching up with one another. So did That's I. True. Yeah. Basically, the world's finally catching up with her. She's like, thanks. sounds like. I've always been this way, and you're finally noticing more of you. Yeah. We're catching up with a lot of things, as you yeah. know, especially when it comes to women. Yeah. We're catching up with a lot of things in African Americans. Can I just say and, something and about other, yeah, that I was saying while watching this, I was looking back at sort of the history of the Black National Anthem, and we were talking about the fact mm-hmm. that it was first performed by 500 school kids at a segregated school in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. She brought up educating about full black history, and I just thought that was notable yeah. in this moment. So, I think Great interview. Mr. Lathan and all the nuns and Miss <laughs> Scott and Miss Abair who taught us about black history. We had black history all the time, not just for one month, and taught us a black national anthem as kids. So it's important for kids to learn the true history mm-hmm. of their country, and I'm so glad I had that foundation thank as a child. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you, interview. guys. Special That's interview. Great. Thank you, thank you. Okay, still in Florida. Yeah, a lot going on in Florida this morning. Uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott, as you saw yesterday, name dropped to CNN anchor quite a bit as he was defending a proposal yesterday. I wonder who that was. Hey, Kayla, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. Jake Tapper said what Jake Tapper said, what Jake Tapper said, and Jake Tapper said. Have you talked to Jake Tapper? So should Jake Tapper join us live next? I think he will. That's next. What exactly did Jake Tapper say? We'll find out. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Good morning. Hope is fading. 
and the death toll is rising as unimaginable loss blankets Turkey and Syria. The new images from the quake zone. There's been a significant turn in the investigations of former President Trump's efforts to overturn the election. What the subpoena for his former vice president means for the case. The Chinese spy balloon capable of monitoring sensitive U.S. communications as we learn about the advanced technology inside of it. Caitlin, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. Jake Tapper said what Jake Tapper said, what Jake Tapper said, and Jake Tapper said. Who better to ask about Senator Rick Scott's claims made during our show than Jake Tapper? He's going to join us live this hour to talk about the fight over Social Security and Medicare playing out within the Republican Party. First, I would like to just thank God for even being here. And DeMar Hamlin speaking out just a month after he was resuscitated on the field, honoring the people who saved his life. Welcome, everyone. We're going to begin in Turkey and Syria, where we are witnessing death and humanitarian crisis there on an astonishing scale. More than 22,000 people now confirmed dead as the staggering death toll continues to soar. It has been 108 hours since the quake struck and hope is running out to find any more survivors in the rubble. But we did just see something remarkable just this morning. A family of six rescued in Turkey after being buried alive for 102 hours. Four children and two parents. They waved as they were brought out on stretchers. We're told that they were in the first floor of a collapsed building. This is their son, who wasn't inside the home when the quake struck, weeping with joy as he saw them emerge from the wreckage. But the grim reality is that thousands are still missing, and many of them could be dead or dying right now beneath piles of concrete. And take a look at some of these before and after photos of the devastation. This is a mosque, a Turkish mosque from the 19th century. It is now in ruins. It's just one of many historic sites destroyed by the earthquake, some of which have stood for centuries. And this is a city street near the epicenter of the earthquake in Turkey. Apartment buildings and businesses completely flattened. And this is a satellite view of Kara Maranche, one of the hardest hit cities in Turkey, building after building reduced to dust. And take a look at the stadium on the right hand side of your screen. That's a soccer stadium. It has become a tent city for survivors who are now homeless. We have our correspondents on the ground across this disaster zone. We begin with Nick Payton Wall. She is live from the search and rescue operation near the Turkish and Syrian border. Good morning to you again, Nick. What can you tell us? Yeah, Poppy, uh, you, behind me, you can see that the excavations have really moved into trying to reduce the rubble. We have still seen glimmers of hope at uh, a helipad just outside a field hospital here in Antakya. Uh, some extraordinary images as helicopters, now part of the machinery of government that is qu quite palpable here now. Turkish naval helicopters coming in, sometimes a frequency of 20 minutes, and filling up with survivors brought in ambulances at a great rate here. At one instance, we saw a three-year-old girl and a two-month-old um, sister of hers, seemingly without their parents, according to the rescuers, whisked onto that helicopter at times. The helicopter's trying to take off but being called back down again because another ambulance had turned up to deliver yet more survivors. One instance, too, and it was an incredibly light load carried by rescuers. I wonder what could possibly be on it. We looked 
and there were two infants on one stretcher passed by hand inside that helicopter which then took off. About 15, I would say, people put onto the helicopters that we saw, part of a persistent stream still of survivors being pulled from the rubble. Startling that after 100 hours we are seeing that. But make no mistake, the predominant story here is one of loss and one of a struggle, I think, to comprehend the new reality that's dawning on Antakya and so much of the swathe of Turkey that's been devastated by this startling earthquake, the worst in nearly 100 years. Here, nearly every building is impacted in some way. Nearly every building will have a question mark over its structural integrity. If even the smallest tremor happens again in the years ahead, so vast amounts of reconstruction will be required and also too, Locals here dealing with the nuances they have to find to the basics of everyday life. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Where are we going to sleep? How are we going to stay warm? The warmth provided by makeshift fires when they're burning anything, often acrid, choking smoke in the air, particularly at night. Food, makeshift, dished out, much more than we've seen before. But the big question of where they're going to live, a very hard one to basically answer, where nearly every building you look at here and in the towns around is heavily damaged. Poppy? Nick Payton Walsh, your reporting has been extraordinary. Thank you very much. Well, New York City family visiting rel relatives in Turkey are among the victims of this deadly earthquake. Barak Farik, his wife Kimberly, and their two sons, two-year-old Hamza, one-year-old Bilal, were found dead and pulled from the rubble of a five-story building that collapsed. Now, the family had been staying in Elbistan, uh, near the epicenter of the second deadly earthquake. So joining us now to tell us about her sister, her brother-in-law, two nephews, Kimberly Farik's younger sister, Salma Salazar. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, we know it's tough. I want to ask you how you're doing because I know it's rough. But what do you want people to know? First and for, foremost, I want people to know that this is a big problem right now in Turkey and in Syria. And although I lost my family, there are currently still people under there. There are children. The number of the death poll, like, it's rising. Um, and the only thing I think that we ask is having the help, the awareness that this is still happening, um, and just getting as many people, all hands, all hands on deck. Um, it's something that when I found out um, that my sister and the rest of my family was missing, there, there was no rescue teams. Um, this is something that the building collapsed and it was just three people in one, on site and manpower being used just for one location because at that time everything was chaotic. Everyone was a priority. So it's really difficult this is really difficult to see this. So we're all very broken in my family. And me and my sister, we yearn, our hearts are broken. Can you tell us about them? Um, so my sister was six years older than me. Um, she was very graceful. She was very, um, she was very lovable. She was very passionate about everything that she did and she certainly put everyone's needs above her own. Um, and my brother-in-law was very, very, very helpful in the community. He was very selfless. He was extremely intelligent. 
And all he wanted to do was help, help, help the community. Um, and he was very, he was donating to Africa. He was donating, he was very active with nonprofit organizations. He, we're really broken. Do you want to tell us about your nephews? My, my nephews. We see them. They're beautiful. My first nephew, his name is Hamza. He's two years old. And my little one was a year old. And there are no words I can describe how my family is feeling, how they were taken away so soon. Um, you know, they were just children. And we're mourning we're mourning, um, you know, this is the, we were just, we had so much hope. You know, our hope was to see him, you know, in programs and enroll him in school. And now we don't have, we don't have that. We've lost all our hope. We don't have anything. My, my mom and my dad, they're very broken. It's like starting over from nothing. It's really difficult. How can we help you? Everyone wants, they're gonna hear your story and be so touched by it. Um, so this is a huge, again, this is very chaotic. This is a huge loss that we are experiencing in my family and not only in my family, but in like the whole country in Turkey. Um, my, my sister and the kids, they were U.S. American citizens. They were born here. They were raised here. And my parents and me, we had, you know, accept and made a huge, great sacrifice in understanding and coming into terms that once we found out, we were ready to go on the next flight to Turkey. But we didn't have that option because the roads were cracked. There was a risk our, our lives were at risk if we went. Um, they weren't letting people inside the city where the epicenter was occurring. They were in Elbistan, Karamamarash. This is a town, this is a small town where once the buildings collapsed, 80 to 95% of the town was completely demolished. Mm. Um, it was very difficult to just get a machine in to help collect and pick up the, 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 the cement, big blocks of cement rocks. Um, you know, so just, we lost five family members, my two nephews, my brother-in-law, my sister, and my brother-in-law's mother and his dad. So my brother-in-law's father was the only survivor. And he just had open heart surgery, you said. He had open heart surgery and he, basically saw his building collapse before his own eyes and he couldn't do anything. And he called my mom and he said, mom, he said, Brock, Marilyn, Hamza, Bilal, they're gone. They're gone, they're under, they, they left. And so he spent over 12 hours digging and, and just finding people in, to help him dig because the machines weren't able to go in. Well, 
listen. We are, um, there aren't words. And we know that this is tough for you and there are min many families here in America who have loved ones there and have lost. And so we're all thinking about you and our thoughts and prayers are with you and we really appreciate you coming in. We know this isn't easy to do. So thank you for your strength and your, your courage and your dignity and we're sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. Um, we also have like a GoFundMe page um, because again, my, my, my brother's father was left with no home. Right now there's tents that are being built um, for people who have lost their home. So we started a page for them um, and this will go solely to him. We're going to share this and we'll make sure that everyone who's watching can, can find that and can help because we want to help you in any way we can. Thank you so and much. Thank you for being here. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Be right back. Intelligence from top secret U.S. spy planes is revealing what China's spy balloons are actually capable of. CNN has now learned that images captured by high altitude U-2 reconnaissance aircraft offer details about the balloon before it was shot down. Our chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo, joins us now to explain what did China's spy balloon at least have the capability to do? Well, Poppy, you remember early on the Defense Department said it had limited surveillance capability. We're learning more details now, and it may be that it had more capability than we realized. Let's get into some of the details here. First of all, signals collection, in other words, it can intercept communications, etc., at least attempt to. Also, it has the ability, according to sources, to geolocate those communications, in other words, where they're coming from and where they're going to. That's significant. It has other capabilities that are better than satellites. One, they could take better photographs. I'm told 3D photographs, more so than satellites that are flying higher. That gives you more detail about the things you're taking photos of. Uh, and it also has a greater ability to steer and to hover over those targets for longer. The satellites are going at, well, 15,000 miles an hour or so as they circle the planet. This could move much more slowly and presumably gather more information as it does so. And this, of course, then informed by where it traveled. What might it be looking up? Up in Montana, ICBM bases up there. In Missouri, Whiteman Air Force Base. That's where the B-2 bomber is based. You get down in North Carolina, you got Fort Bragg, Camp Lejeune, other military installations. So to have that capability more than we knew, initially significant given where, the, where it flew over the U.S. No question, Jim. Thank you. That's fascinating. Also this morning, President Biden is continuing to hammer Florida Senator Rick Scott and his proposal to sunset all federal legislation after five years, including Medicare and Social Security, unless Congress decided to reauthorize it. Scott defended the proposal he made yesterday, comparing it to a 2017 Republican health care plan that would have cut insurance from 24 million Americans, according to the CBO. He brought up a 2017 interview where my colleague Jake Tapper pressed a Trump official on the cuts. Hey, Caitlin, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. This is back when uh, Republicans were proposing reducing the cost of Medicaid. But what about what Jake Tapper said? I mean, what Jake Tapper said, and Jake Tapper said, that is a cut. You know, have you talked to Jake Tapper? What did, why did he say it was a cut if Republicans do it? Did the same fact checkers go back and look at what Jake Tapper said? Did, why did Jake Tapper said that $880 billion cut in Medicaid is a cut? What they did last fall is going to reduce life-saving drugs. I, I understand you're saying it has an impact. life-saving drugs. I understand you're saying it has an impact on drugs. That is different, though, than saying that they cut Medicare when they're saving money on the cost of what those drugs cost to Americans. 
Okay, but then, what, then why did Jake Tapper said that $880 billion cut in Medicaid is a cut? I'm sorry, Senator. I don't think that's the defense that you think it is. Here is what Jake actually said. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the health care bill that just passed the House would cut $880 billion over 10 years from Medicaid. Now, I know that the Trump administration is excited that Medicaid will go back to the states where they have more control and can experiment and be more efficient. But without question, $880 billion fewer dollars is a cut. Joining us now to discuss is CNN's Jake Tapper. Jake, uh, what did you make of that, watching that interview, hearing your name be invoked so many times by Senator Scott? Well, first of all, a rough morning for anybody that was playing the Jake Tapper drinking game um, for eight <laughs> yeah. times in five minutes, ten minutes. That's 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 I, first. It was incomprehensible to me, honest. Um, there, I mean, there's so many issues here. One is Senator Rick Scott proposed sunsetting all federal programs every five years, and if they're worthwhile, then Congress can renew them. That's his proposal. I mean, just in the last day, uh, the Senate Minority Leader. Mitch McConnell was saying that's the Rick Scott plan. It's not the Republican plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and House Speaker McCarthy has been saying the same thing. That's not our plan. But Rick Scott did propose it, and he was the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee when he when he proposed it. So, I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, for whatever reason, Senator Scott didn't want to stand by that plan. And there is a, a way to discuss it. The, you know, just, you can say... Medicare and Social Security, there are real issues with their solvency, and this is a way, a way to have that conversation, yeah. et cetera. And by all means, they should have that conversation. But the, just the, the whatever that was, that, that word salad, where he kept on mentioning me, was just very strange to me because he was trying to compare Medicare now being able to negotiate drug prices with drug companies, which is not a cut from Medicare. It's a cut in pharmaceutical company profits, no question, but it's not a cut in Medicare, with me asking a question about the Congressional Budget Office analysis of a Medicaid bill from 2017. I mean, but Jake, it's really just kind of nonsensical. Jake, you know what that is. So, so he didn't say Jake Tapper says when he did his interview on Fox. He didn't say Jake Tapper says when he did his interviews other places. It was someone gave him that talking point, probably saying, well, you know, they said it on CNN. If Jake Tapper says it, then whatever. And so I think he was using that as a talking point and kind of a gotcha to CNN during Caitlin's interview, and she's right. It's not sure. the defense that you think it is. So I think that's what it was, but I think it ob obviously fell flat. Yeah, no, look, when he went on Fox, uh, not this week, but recently, to try to defend this Rescue America plan, he accused Fox of reading Democratic talking points. John Roberts. I think it was John Roberts. Yeah, it was John Roberts in and the all, summer. Yeah, yeah. And all John, uh, yeah, and all, and all John was doing was literally reading the, the Rick Scott plan. So, look, I'm not here to, and the, the same as, as all of you, I'm not here to take a position on his plan. This is his plan. I'm not pro-Rick Scott plan. I'm not anti-Rick Scott plan. I'm just, here is what he is proposing. Uh, and obviously he doesn't want to defend it. He wants to change the subject, which is an odd thing to do, but that's also his prerogative. We do need more Jake Tapper in the morning on this program. I'm not sure that's the way we wanted to get it, but we're glad it got you here. Can we just, I want your take on what Mitch McConnell has said in the last 24 hours. Here it is. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with that. I mean, it's just a bad idea. Uh, I think it will be a challenge for him to deal with this in his own reelection in Florida, a state with more elderly people than any other state in America. 
That is really Surprise. interesting to hear McConnell say. Obviously, there was no love lost between the two. But to hear him say this is going to make his own reelection in his state harder. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, Rick Scott has been challenging Mitch McConnell for the leadership position in the Senate. He has failed. Uh, he has not successfully challenged him, but he's been, been tried to do it. And second of all, I think that this is exactly why um, but, you know, the way that President Biden is using this issue is exactly why so many Republicans did not embrace the Rick Scott plan mm -hmm. because they thought it was electorally, politically, a real vulnerability. And, and look, what, what President Biden said at the State of the Union, that there are some Republicans proposing sunsetting Medicare and Social Security, it's accurate. Rick Scott proposed it. Now, the, all the Republicans that booed him and called him a liar, that's not accurate because Rick Scott did propose it. Um, but the truth is what McConnell said, that Rick Scott proposed it, but most Republicans have distanced themselves from it quite quite a bit. Yeah, McConnell's like, okay, I'm in charge and Kevin McCarthy are in charge. We're the leaders of the party in our respective chambers. We, chambers. we are against this. So I do think it's important to note that. We've heard Republicans say that. I will say, you know, to be fair to Rick Scott, his uh, senior advisor to him in responding to McConnell said, Rick Scott knows how to win Florida a hell of a lot better than Mitch McConnell does. Some D.C. Republicans can keep parroting Democratic lies. That won't stop Rick Scott from fighting for conservative principles instead of caving to Biden. Basically, Rick Scott is still standing by this plan. Jake, when I asked him yesterday if it was a mistake, uh, he said no. He didn't think it was a mistake to propose it. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, more importantly, Jake, you have speaking a very of important. Win, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows how to win on Sunday, right? What's going to happen on Sunday? Who are you rooting for? I can't tell. Yeah, with a green tie. I don't know. We can't so, tell. So <laughs> this, this is my Eagles tie. <laughs> am I, am I, and this is this is from with the, this is from the last time they won the Super Bowl, and uh, and we're looking forward to another victory uh, this Sunday. The the beloved Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I know we're underdogs in this game against the Kansas City Chiefs, for whom my wife roots. Um, but you know it's going to be a good game. I, I will say it's much more fun to root against the villainous Patriots uh, than it is against the Chiefs. They're just not. As you know, it's not like going against the Death Star, but I, I'm looking forward to a good game and uh, and the Eagles being victorious. Jalen Hurts is a, a phenom. So yep. how is it sleeping on the couch, Jake? <laughs> it's good. We just we just got a new couch. It's very comfortable. And don't root against Jen Tapper. All right, Jake. Thank you so my much. New, my nickname for Jake now is Jake Tapper says. So that's it. <laughs> can we get Jake Tapper says on the show? Jake just Tapper says. Just don't do the Jake. Just don't just don't do the drinking game. Right. Scott's on. Thanks, Jake. We'll see you. All right. Uh, good luck on Sunday. Experts are warning the Great Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake could disappear within the next five years because of the climate change fuel mega drought in the West. We have a live report from Utah next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Okay, so the Great Salt Lake in Utah evaporating before our eyes. Scientists say it may disappear altogether in five years, but could be saved with some emergency measures. Many experts believe what's happening there is a microcosm of what's expected to happen to the planet. So let's check in now with our chief climate correspondent, Mr. Bill Weir, live in St. George, Utah. Bill, what's going on here? 
Well, Don, here in Utah, this mega drought is not just about the water they drink or use to water their crops and animals. It is about the air they breathe. It is about toxic dust. And they're realizing now that if they don't spend billions to put more water into the Great Salt Lake, they could be paying much more forever. This is what is left of the Great Salt Lake. They've hit record lows in recent months, exposing around 800 square miles of lake bed. But unchecked water use and climate change aren't just threatening the birds and sailboaters. And here, the Western mega drought threatens a lot more than just snow sports, agriculture, and industry. Because this lake bed holds centuries of toxic runoff, mercury, selenium, arsenic, some of it natural, some of it man-made mining waste. But if it turns to dust and adds to some of the worst air pollution in the country, this is a threat to the lungs of over two and a half million people. We've done this experiment in history before. <laughs> we, we know about dust storms, we know about particulate pollution, we know about heavy metals and how they're bad for humans. This is an ecological disaster that will become a human health disaster. Bonnie Baxter is among the scientists who recently warned that the Great Salt Lake, as we know it, could be gone in five years shriveled in the fingers of lifeless water before becoming the great toxic dust bowl. You can kind of see a person standing out there like the yeah. water would have been above their head just a few years ago. This is what is known as a terminal lake with no rivers to take minerals to the sea. So they build up over time, just like Owens Lake in California after developers notoriously drained it a century ago to build Los Angeles. It both inspired the movie Chinatown and forced Californians to spend in the billions to control the toxic dust that remains a threat a hundred years later. This lake is 12 to 15 times bigger than Owens Lake. It's right next to a metropolitan center, which that lake was not. So there are people who will breathe this dust immediately. And we're really, really concerned about that happening here. So right. we have done that experiment. We shouldn't do it again. It was human choices that led to that catastrophic event. Right, we're looking at the Great Salt Lake in a position right now to where we can avoid that ca catastrophe, where we don't have to spend those billions of dollars in remediation in the future if we make choices today. Brian Steed and John Lynn are from rival Utah universities, one with a background in state government, the other an atmospheric scientist. Well, the thing is, it's bipartisan, right? The right. Air we all want clean air. Together, they're part of the newly formed Great Salt Lake Strike Team, out to convince everyone that every drop counts. For a long time, I don't think that people were sufficiently talking for the lake. Now I think that we have a lot of people interested, the governor of the state, the legislature, who's all very interested in coming up with different scenarios and different solutions so that we don't end up with that catastrophic outcome. It seems like the path of least resistance is for the state to pay farmers for their water rights. Is that gonna happen? I don't know, it remains to be seen. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we could do that go to that extreme. Among the signs of change, when U.S. Magnesium wanted to extend canals into the lake, the state said no. And last year, the legislature finally began revising water laws written in the days of the Wild West. Sometimes I feel like we take a step forward and sometimes we take a step back, but in general, all those pieces of water legislation that passed in 2022 were bipartisan and unanimous. Like, where does that happen anymore? Fingers crossed it keeps happening because the only thing that can keep the Salt Lake great is lots of snow and even more cooperation. 
about two thirds of Utah's population is at risk of this dust right now. And but they're finally coming around to this. They're finally getting water meters in the year 2023 to really measure exactly how much the farmers are using. And they hope knowledge is power to keep that lake alive. Don, Poppy. We hope so. Thank you, Bill. We appreciate that. Extraordinary to see. All right. Last month, an AED, an automated defibrillator, saved Damar Hamlin's life on the field. Now we're going to talk about how accessible that life-saving equipment is at schools around the country. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta has a new report and spoke to a parent whose son suffered the same injury as Hamlin, but on a high school lacrosse field. What if it had happened, you know, a few miles away from here? It would have been a totally different outcome. You can do CPR till you're blue in the face, and it's never going to restart the heart. This past week, NFL union doctors said they were optimistic that the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin would play again professional football after having cardiac arrest on the field last month. But what if he had still been in high school, right? We asked this in the days after that happened. Where are the resources? Would he have gotten the same treatment? Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta takes a look. When Buffalo Bill safety DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field in January, Pete Lake immediately thought about his son, Peter. It really brought back a lot of emotions and, and still does, truthfully. Two years ago, then a high school freshman, Peter Lake was playing defense for the Loyola Dons against the McDonough Eagles. He was right around the 20 yard line. And what you're about to watch is the exact moment his heart stopped beating. I went to the ball, I stepped in front of it, and I just got hit. Like I've done that many times before. I kind of even winced and I'm like, that, just thinking in my head, oh, that one's gonna hurt. Jeremy Parr is the assistant athletic director and the head athletic trainer at Peter's school. That sunny day, he was watching diligently from the sideline. Because this shot was pretty hard, I was watching Peter instead of the course of the action of the game. I had started looking for what was gonna happen next, and then just like that, you know, I like got dizzy and I just like blacked out. I could hear first, he had some agonal breathing. So it, it was like this gasping or gurgling for air. He's prone on the ground. I checked for a pulse and we didn't have one. The diagnosis, commotio cordis, a rare phenomenon with fewer than 30 cases reported every year. Now let me show you exactly what happened to Peter. His heart here is contracting and relaxing. That's a normal rhythm. But at the exact millisecond the heart needs to recharge before the next beat, that's this little bump here, the lacrosse ball hit the left side of his chest. As a result, his heart never got the chance to relax. It starts fibrillating instead. Peter goes into cardiac arrest, and the clock starts ticking. What was that like for you? Didn't have time to think. With no pulse, no breathing, we needed to get the AED and EMS activated as soon as possible. And in Peter's case, it all worked, and fast, two to three minutes. But watching all this as a parent, I couldn't help but wonder, what if this were my kid's school, your kid's school? As part of a CNN investigation, we learned that nowadays, at least 20 states have laws requiring AEDs. And in reality, about 70 to 80% of schools have at least one defibrillator on hand. 
but how accessible they are. This is all it is. That is the real issue we uncovered. What if it had happened, you know, a few miles away from here? It would have been a totally different outcome. You can do CPR till you're blue in the face and it's never going to restart the heart. It is 100% access to an AED within a very timely period. Turns out where you live makes a big difference. For example, in Ohio and Michigan, more than 70% of public schools had AEDs, but in locations that simply couldn't be reached in time. In Oregon, just half of schools had an AED accessible within four minutes of all sports venues. In Vermont, despite 81% of schools having an AED, just 16% of them had them located at fields or arenas. And about half the time, they were in the school nurse's office or the lobby. This is an example of a portable... We learned that athletic trainers are critical, and schools that had athletic trainers were more likely to have AEDs. The chance of survival from a cardiac arrest nearly doubled to over 80% if an athletic trainer or AED were used. But as things stand now, a third of the country's schools don't have anyone in that position. All athletes should be afforded the same resources that we have here that Division I athletes in college have and, and professional sports as well. That's the thing. It's availability and access. Both are crucially important. And it's one of the most important things you can do for your kids. Make sure AEDs are available and accessible in your kid's school. It saved Peter Lake's life and allowed for moments like this. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is with us. I'm so glad you did this reporting because we were all saying, oh my gosh, what if this happened to kids and teens? A lot of schools already don't right. have enough funding. How expensive is an AED? They're about a thousand to $2,000, depending on the model, they, but they can last several years. So that's, that's not a yearly cost. What, what was striking is that, you know, in the late nineties, no one was really talking about this. So over the last 20 years, they have put a lot more of these AEDs in, in schools and in other large venues. If it's a venue over 200 people, mm -hmm. you're required to have an AED now. So it can make a big difference. What they find in schools specifically, Poppy, is mm -hmm. that there should be about one AED for every 500 students, okay. and they should be accessible, not just available, but accessible yeah. within two minutes. That ends up being key in terms of potentially saving lives, like you saw with Peter there. I don't even know if my kid's school has this, so I think I and a lot of other parents will I ask. asked at my own kid's school after I saw what happened with Damar. I, right. I went in and asked the athletic trainers about it. Every, everybody should do that. Yeah. All right, doctor, thank you for doing this piece. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you can you read Sanjay's essay about keeping high schoolers safe on CNN.com. Yeah. Uh, it's a, there was someone uh, in the lobby a couple months ago that had a went into cardiac arrest. Really? And we have one in the lobby, and they came over to Goodness. borrow ours, and they save the person. Wow. It's amazing versus CPR how much better yep. it, it is. is. Like yeah. it is, it is astronomically better yeah. to do that than a than CPR. Okay. okay. Well, during the pandemic, Mark Marin wasn't sure if he would ever do stand-up comedy again, but three years later, he's back with his patented optimism and positivity. Sarcasm. I don't want to be negative, but I don't think anything's ever going to get better ever again. And don't misunderstand me. I have no hope. I think if you have hope, what are you, seven? See how cheery he is? He's live in the studio to spread uh, joy. <laughs> <laughs>
Like that makes you more responsible, more evolved, a better human. Go yourself. I have three cats that I love, and in the best case scenario, I'm gonna have to have them all killed. I'm gonna have to kill my friends. And I knew it going in. That's how big my heart is. <laughs> that was comedian Mark Marin, who is known for his dark but blunt humor. After the loss of his girlfriend in 2020, Marin wondered if he'd ever perform stand-up again, both because of his emotional state and just the restrictions due to the pandemic. But three years later, the comedian, actor, podcaster extraordinaire is back on stage laughing again and exploring the state of the world in a new HBO special from bleak to dark. So joining us now is Mark Marin, who is also the host of the WTF podcast. Premieres tomorrow. Did, yeah. you, did you think that you'd, you'd be here? You'd be in this position and it, you'd have this premiere? Sitting on, on a CNN show in the morning? <laughs> uh, CNN show at 8.15 in the morning. I, I never could have dreamed that I'd be on CNN at 7 I in the morning. I love you. I so relate to it's you. It's 8.50? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I just got up. How about you guys? I wish. No, I... I, did any of us know what was going to happen? I didn't know where we yeah. would be. I, I have a hard time really kind of, you know, thinking about tomorrow, let alone the future. But I didn't know the, the not doing comedy thing was real. Like, because during the pandemic, I really just didn't. The weird thing was, is I didn't miss it. And I've been doing it all my life. But the only thing I thought was, maybe I don't need it anymore. Maybe I'm all better. So that kind of was a weird framing of it. Like, but I'm you're not, not really, clearly, since no, you're doing it No, not still. better. But as soon as other people started doing comedy, I'm like, all right, here we go. The race is back on. So... It just started again, and I just started at it a couple of years ago, building new material. Yeah, that's kind of that's what I do. I was telling you, I watch. I, yeah, I, I watch uh, Sam Rell, Mark Norman, also their podcast. We might be drunk. Like I just, um, we need humor in this sure. time, and I think the more sort of irreverent it is, yeah, the better. Because I'm kind of sick of people like you know, we can't say this, we can't say that because. Yeah, I don't like, you know, you can say whatever you want, really. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do like. Uh, I think I'm just naturally a dark comic, yeah. and, and I need to do that to feel better. So if it helps other people feel better. I'm not saying I'm for everybody, yeah. but, you know, I, I can get it through. Well, let's listen to some of it, because you're All in right. the politically incorrect culture. What... You talk about that. Let's oh, see. good. But I don't always know that I'm getting older. I don't always feel it, because I think it's a few reasons. Because I don't have kids. I think if you have kids, you can kind of see you're dying in your kids. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's cynical and I don't really know, but I have to imagine at some point you're like, happy birthday, son. How old are you today? 17, I'm dying. I'm sorry, I meant to say have fun today. I, I don't know, I guess I was thinking out loud a little bit. Yeah, no kids. <laughs> yeah, wait, you, you checking your phone, Don? No, I was checking to to I was checking to make sure that I had the comedians that I love uh, right because I want to get people's names. Well, I Mark think, Norman, yeah, I, he's yeah great. but I think comedians like you know in this moment they're helping us, and I want to make sure that I give you guys some love. That's what I'm doing. Well, I think it's yeah we all need help to to get through whatever's happening because it's not going to end well done. I, I don't want to <laughs> spoil the ending. Yeah, 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 but we none of us know what's going to happen, but we can kind of feel that it might not be great. If Poppy is sitting here. Poppy is the most optimistic and upbeat person, and then I come in and I'm like, I'm more he like you. He growls at me some morning. Are you like, are you like uh, we... annoyingly optimistic? I'm, no. Thanks, Caitlin. No, not at all. <laughs> yes, no. Can we talk? It's like ambitious and, and lovely. Well, I'm going to start. I feel like I'm starting something. I'm, I'm glad I'm here to. Can, can we what? talk about Lynn, though? Because yes, I know this course. is all fun, but like, 
a part of the reason you didn't know you could come back to comedy, yeah. you lost the love of your life. Yes. Lynn was a very talented director. She was, what, 39? No, 54. 54. Why yeah. did I see 39? But I, she looked 39 yeah, is what she we're going to say. Yeah. But you lost her so young. Yeah. And, um, and I was reading something you said about grief. And you say grief is a strange thing. Um, you hear about it all the time, but then all of a sudden you're in it. Yeah. Can you talk about coming from that to here? Well, yeah, I mean... It was. It, it happened very quickly, and it was very tragic, and it was not expected. And, and she had a, a, some underlying condition that we didn't know about. It was in the middle of COVID, and because of the nature of just that, you know, people couldn't really come over. It was. It was kind of isolating. And well, you hear about grief, but no one really talks about it. But when you have it, it kind of it never goes away, and it, it's sort of when you're in it at the beginning, it's like a PTSD quality and you can't really stop the emotions even though you want to stop them. And then you wonder, like, is it ever, you want relief. But ultimately what happens, I think, because, you know, we're people and I think people are designed to sort of deal with loss because we do, everyone's going to. It, it kind of grows with you and, and it's always there. Like, you know, you can kind of tap into it. You can experience the feelings. But it, I just never heard it talked about comedically or, or any other way. And I, I, and I don't think there's a real big cultural dialogue on that. So it was important yeah. for me to honor her and also to, you know, to, to get the discussion out into the world about it and have some humor about it. I hope she likes the jokes. This is in the special. Yeah. There's this weird things that started happening when I was doing, when I was talking about her. I was in Ireland where we spent one vacation together mm. And I was doing the, the stuff about her passing, and, and the lights started going on and off really? in the theater. Yeah. And I was sort of like, all right, hi, Lynn. You know, like, <laughs> I, and oh, it's crazy. I talk about it in special. I think you feel people. I, I like to believe ways. that. You, I, do, I, I mean, I yeah, I, do, I definitely address it in, in the special the, can, with can the hummingbird. Shout out to her foundation of a certain of age, course. right? So yeah. there's that. And, um, I can't wait to watch. Okay. Thank you. Premieres tomorrow, All right? That. It does, I believe so. If this is Friday, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Friday. It's 8 a.m. I have uh, to ask people what day it is and date as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, move the prompter back. What is it? Premieres tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Eastern on HBO. Streaming available as well tomorrow on HBO Max. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank, Thanks thank for previewing Mark, it with us. Yeah. It's good, good to thank see you. you. Thanks for coming in. Thank yeah, you yeah, for absolutely. joining us. Sure. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you have a lovely weekend. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. See you next week. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.